0: Hello and welcome to the June episode of Rich Pickings. I'm Richard Edgar, talking to you from my hometown on the south coast of England. The sun is shining, shops are open, people are out here on the beach... In fact, you'd be forgiven for forgetting there was a health crisis. Our investment teams certainly haven't, though. And this month, we're taking a closer look at the COVID-19-related research they've been doing, what they've learned about lockdowns, what different approaches to lockdown mean for economies, the vaccine hopes none yet met, and how it has all been affecting investment decisions. Listen on to find out more. Huddled around their video conference screens to talk to me today are Anna Stupanitska, global economist, Amit Loder, global equities portfolio manager, and Tom Ackermans, financial analyst and a lead on Fidelity's COVID research group. Hello to you all. Hello, Richard. There's plenty of bad news around, but to put us in a good frame of mind at the start of this episode, um, I want to hear what's the most positive thing that's happened to you this week. Anna, let me come to you first.
1: Well, I really enjoyed um, uh, splashing in the paddling pool with my kids yesterday uh, in the sunshine, given the great weather in the UK.
2: Simple pleasures. Uh, Tom, how about you? Well, this week my uh, robotic lawnmower was delivered, so hopefully I won't be uh, mowing lawns anymore and we'll have time for much uh, much more other fun stuff.
0: Uh, this is the consumer demand that I'm sure we'll touch on later on for uh, ridiculous things um, during lockdown. And, uh, and Amit, what about you? Best thing that's happened to you this week?
3: The best thing that's happened to me was the invite to come on the podcast, Richard. And the reason for that... <laughs> is that you, you know, Alex delivered this great mic and my daughter now believes that daddy's finally getting a good job as a pop star. (laughs) Well...
0: You're, you're, you're a star. You're uh, you're on air. So uh, so welcome again to all, all three of you. Now, Anna, last time we spoke, um, we were arguing about whether inflation would pick up as policymakers pumped the economic system with uh, more and more money. Since then, we've had a month of economies further opening up. Um, how are things looking now? Give us the, the good news first. There have been some encouraging signs out of Europe, haven't there?
1: Yes, the good news is that we have seen a number of uh, positive data surprises over the past couple of weeks as the economies continued reopening. Uh, Through May and June, uh, we have seen significant pickup in higher frequency indicators, such as uh, Google Mobility and credit card spend, which we have been tracking because they have been better proxies uh, to uh, monthly indicators that we usually track. But that started feeding into the monthly indicators, such as the PMI, that's the business confidence in Europe. Uh, We saw some flash PMIs, which again surprised on the upside in both manufacturing and services. In the US, we have seen in retail sales so this is the sign that there is that pent-up demand from consumption and consumers are getting back into shops Um, so uh, this is uh, all good news and uh, very positive headlines. But bad news, I guess, uh, is that um, I think that this um, rebound that we're observing um, should not come as a surprise. It, it's a mechanical transition from lockdown to reopening. And we will get double-digit growth rates in many indicators. And uh, I'm not surprised uh, as well that they come uh, above consensus because forecasting has been so, so difficult in the circumstances where you have such sharp slowdown and a sharp rebound. I'm not surprised that it was above consensus uh, in many cases. But I do think that um, uh, this uh, will likely prove uh, temporary. And as we go further through reopening, um, we uh, we will see uh, actually permanent and more serious damage that has been caused to the economy. And that's what I worry about.
0: And by permanent uh, damage, um, these are things like permanent job losses, aren't they?
1: Yes exactly we have seen some rehiring um, and again this was another upside surprise in the in the data in the jobs report in the US in May however Uh, a lot of the job losses might uh, become permanent and actually we're seeing some evidence in the US from a number of studies that about 30% of the job losses will become permanent uh, not just because of uh, the uh, suppressed demand and and the supply shock but also uh, because of structural trends uh, as in some businesses uh, will have to close forever particularly in retail for example we know this is the sector that is facing structural headwinds as well.
0: So you covered The bad news there, um, Anna. And Amit, I want to come to you because whilst Anna is reporting, you know, things like permanent job losses in in, in the US and of course, I mean, lots of other parts of the world um, as well, markets have largely ignored that. Does that disconnect worry you?
3: Yeah, it worries me in the in the very short term. Um, I think longer term, you know, markets don't only discount the state of the economy as it is today. What they're discounting is the long-term structural growth. You know, the value of a company on the stock market is only you know five percent influenced by the earnings of this year, and really ninety-five percent influenced by the earnings in the future. So you know, the markets are really discounting not only what we are seeing today, but the future. Um, I would say that I agree with Anna that we are probably discounting a very Goldilocks period in in the future. And it may not come to pass as such because there are a lot of structural issues that we still need to solve for. And what COVID has done is it has highlighted a lot of those structural issues, whether they be on the lines of inequalities, um, which you see with the protests going on in, in, in parts of the world, whether you see the high corporate balance sheet debt, uh, which is, again, an issue that we need to work through, or just the amount of you know money printing that, that has happened from from the central banks as, um, as a cure to, to the problem, at least from a financial sense. So there's a lot of things that we need to work out over the next three to five years. And I think that's that's an area which I think the market's not fully focused on. Now,
0: we've talked in the past about consumers in the US. And when Anna is uh, talking about the gravity of the situation there, the employment situation, millions of permanent job losses, at a time when household debt has reached over $14 trillion, could that be where something even more significant starts?
3: Yeah, I think that's you know, it's it's really very interesting what's happened over the last three months. And it's only three months. But, you know, the scale of the fiscal response and the government response has been unprecedented. So there's been, you know, $600 being put into everyone's pockets. Um, And what we've heard from companies is that, you know, uh, the lower income groups are now making almost 110% of what they were making before they were unemployed. So, you know, this is a huge stimulus, if you like. To to consumer spending, which is what we are seeing at this point of time. But this is what typically happens in a wartime economy. And really the the issue that we are all worried about is what happens when this stimulus is withdrawn, because it will have to be withdrawn because someone will have to pay for it. So this is not going to last forever. In the US in July, a lot of these programs expire. So the Congress has to meet again and redo the stimulus bills. Um, If you see what's going on in the public sector, it's very interesting. You know, we don't have a good state and municipal uh, stimulus bill at this point of time. And so job losses in that sector actually have been rising quite substantially. And what we've heard from the companies that we speak to is that, you know, no one wants to let go of people in this tough time, you know, their mental health issues. So really, everyone's thinking about right sizing in 2021. So really, the job losses that we are all worried about are likely to come more in the future rather than in the immediate vicinity. So so the unemployment numbers that we all focus on and, and think there's an upside surprise in the short term, I think what I'm more worried about is how all of this progresses in, in 2021 and 2022.
0: And Anna, I mean, that makes it all the harder. You're talking about how difficult it is to to make forecasts. But when you're trying to sort of second guess company behavior on something as significant as this, um, is that that making it pretty tough?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think there are three main areas um, that uh, we're trying to second guess outside of the virus trajectory. Uh, The consumer behavior. Um, and we've discussed a lot, there's been a lot of talk about uh, more cautious behavior, not going out, not doing uh, you know, shopping, not going to restaurants, but also uh, saving more. In the US, uh, we saw um, in May, the savings rate was was 33% and it was distorted and um, elevated. Uh, I'm sure we'll see a downward revisions. Uh, however, it does uh, tell us that um, there is some uh, precautionary savings already going on. So
0: what, 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 would, what would be the impact of that saving as it is at the moment, remaining as savings, or if it starts to be um, spent, what, what you know, which way are you looking at that?
1: Well, meaning that um, consumers uh, in the US uh, saved about seven uh, percent uh, before the crisis and 4% before the global financial crisis. So we already saw the step up um, after the last crisis. And my suspicion is that we will see another step up in the savings rate, perhaps to uh, 10% or, or even above after this crisis, as uh, consumers uh, uh, try to be uh, more cautious and build up more savings uh, in case uh, something like this happens again.
3: But it's also a red herring, um, sorry to interrupt, Anna, but it's also a red herring in the sense that the savings are because... People- People not haven't had the opportunity to spend, you know, like in the UK, the pubs have been closed. So I'm sure, you know, your savings rate has gone up, Richard. <laughs> It has. It happens.
1: Thirty-three <laughs> percent is obviously very, very high, and that has been mainly due to the fact that people couldn't go out and spend. You know, absolutely agree. And I don't think it will stay there, but um, it will probably come come down to low double digits, and not back to seven percent or below that as we come out of the crisis. The second area is the corporate behavior and what businesses are going to do um, with respect to uh, labor costs, uh, uh, labor versus capital because uh, perhaps uh, it's, and Amit can talk perhaps about it, perhaps some businesses will decide to move down the automation route to increase their resilience as we go forward. And something like this happens, then you're not so much exposed uh, to the virus. And the third area that is also quite difficult to read is policy. We've had this huge amount of support. And in fact, that that gap between um, the markets and economic fundamentals that... uh, Uh, Amit talked about, is probably largely due to that incredible liquidity that has been pumped into the system by the central banks. But these programs cannot last forever, both on the monetary and on the fiscal side. Um, The policymakers have made it clear that these are crisis time policies. And the more positive data surprises we get, the more difficult it will become for them to justify extending those policies. So um, that makes it particularly difficult. Are these policies extended? Then, well, it, it's probably great for consumers, great for businesses uh, in a sense that uh, they won't have to face uh, tough choices now. Or are they going to expire or are they going to be expanded, uh, extended at lower levels with lower support? And then we will see that sort of crisis unraveling earlier than we think.
3: So, bad news is good news.
1: As always.
3: Yep, sadly. <laughs> You, you mentioned, Anna, you
0: mentioned automation. Tom Ackermans, his saving rate has not gone up because he's been spending on robotic lawnmowers, he tells us. But uh, Tom, aside from your day job as a financials analyst, you and a team of colleagues have been immersed in COVID-related data over the past few months, the infection numbers, the drug trials, economic activity, distilling it into research notes for the investment teams. Now, what, what are the main impressions you've built up over that time?
2: The starting point would just be that this is obviously something that we've never dealt with before in our lives, and we can all refer to past pandemics, but circumstances back then were very different. So from, from the beginning onwards, we very very much focused on just gathering the data, learning as much as we could, and trying to approach the, the situation from all sorts of different angles. Because there were some pretty strong statements out there in the media and from people who purported to be experts on the matter that later just turned out to be completely false or, or had completely underestimated the severity of, of what we were dealing with.
0: When did it dawn on you that this was really serious?
2: I, I'd, I'd have to say I was probably fairly late myself in terms of realising what was going on. I mean, I went you know snowboarding in Austria in, in February, came back early March, still thought this was going to be a short-term issue. But fairly shortly thereafter, it became quite clear that this wasn't just a small thing and that there were very serious consequences looming. And I think interestingly, we, we saw something similar a few weeks back, right? When, when the virus looked to be under control in, in many countries and many areas, there was a lot of optimism out there in the press and, and from the general public that we've dealt with this, we, we, we're going to go better from here. But I think at the time, the, the data continued to show several kind of areas of key concern, we didn't share that optimism at the time and 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 we're seeing some of that come in into the data over the past couple of days and weeks again.
0: it is it's looking serious again. What's been the biggest challenge for the group though as you've um sort of tried to get a, a handle on what's been going on in a global pandemic i mean the
2: uh, the amount of data must be must be vast exactly so it's mostly just filtering through the noise as well right There's been so many research papers written so many people trying to make a name for themselves out of kind of publishing stuff. You know, I've read lots and lots of papers and even though I'm no medical expert, some of them were very, very poorly structured and came up with conclusions that then got reiterated in the press and were essentially based on nothing. There have been issues with data consistency, countries mixing up their test results or combining antibody with PCR tests. And so just making sure that you're drawing the conclusions from the data that you should be drawing the conclusions from and not from some other sort of kind of mix up. We've had to be very careful with that because it's been all too easy to go down a route that later turns out to be wrong.
0: In some countries, lockdown is easing. In some countries, it's tightening. I mean, here in the UK, we've just been told that we can go to a barber, but you can't go to a nail bar. I don't know if that troubles you, Tom. Uh, We can go to a cinema, but we can't go bowling. Are you confident about the way that lockdowns are being treated and, and, and lifted?
2: Not necessarily, I would say. I think there's a couple of points that we need to take into account when thinking about the lifting of lockdowns. There's obviously a big difference between the point at which lockdowns are released in terms of the actual virus trajectory until that point of of kind of lifting of lockdowns. Then it's very dependent on a country's ability to track and trace cases and make sure that that new spreads are are quickly brought under control. Um, It's to an extent also heavily related to the usage of face masks by the general public. And one thing that we shouldn't underestimate is the impact that super spreader events have had on, on the first wave of, of COVID in particular, right? So if you think of the point of lockdown release, we've seen a number of countries, in particular in Europe, really wait quite long until they kind of started lifting measures, only at the point where they really felt that both the new case count as well as hospital and ICU capacity was really under control and there was plenty of room to deal with any new outbreaks. On track and trace, I think speaks for itself. But if we look at countries like South Korea, who very successfully implemented that from the beginning, they are dealing with a small second wave at the moment. And while they've been reporting a number of cases for several days and weeks in a row now, um, it's all within amounts that are manageable for the country. Mask wearing, I think, speaks for itself as well, but there's obviously huge cultural differences in terms of um, people's willingness to to adhere to to certain government advice measures and then super spreader events. We shouldn't all go stand in a concert hall and and sing along with our favorite band because that will inevitably lead to a massive spread of new cases. The UK pups reopening, if we all go sit outside the pups on a terrace, that's a much better. Kind of way of dealing with things than standing inside and shouting at each other because the music in the pubs too loud. And p- perhaps
0: it's a relief that the Austrian snowboarding season is over as well. Um, but um, but Anna, just coming to you, you know Tom's been explaining about the different ways that governments have been tackling the pandemic in terms of the infection, but what about the the treatment for the economy that governments and central banks have um, unleashed? You talked about the vast amounts of uh, money that's been injected. Could they do it again if there is a um, a serious second wave?
1: Well, I think that... um... Those policies that uh, are about to expire, and we discussed the um, U.S. uh, programs, uh, they will have to be extended. As I said, the positive data surprises do make it a bit more difficult, particularly in those countries like the U.S. where you have to pass the new stimulus And there is some opposition um, in the Congress. However, I think it's likely that those programs will be extended, uh, uh, again, not just in the US, elsewhere. Um, And I think it's likely that the central banks will have to do more. I do think that uh, the CB will have to upsize the emergency pandemic program. The Fed um, will have to do more in terms of perhaps rates or buying other asset classes, buying more uh, more asset classes and um, the BOE too. So all major central banks have to do more, all governments have to do more. I mean, we have to make a distinction here and I think that's very important. Emergency crisis measures versus recovery growth measures and those we haven't had yet the latter, the latter part so everything has been just thrown in uh, to make sure that markets are working there is liquidity in the system to make sure that disposable incomes uh, don't collapse and that has been pretty successful at least so far however as we come out of this crisis again economies uh, reopen um, you will need to see much more pro-growth policy support to get that recovery going Um, and I'm a bit worried that there is a lot of focus on um, crisis fighting and not enough focus on those pro-growth measures and in fact I think so far it's just Germany that has announced a substantial reform package to boost uh, demand and boost growth going forward.
3: To back Anna's point, you know it's it's almost like uh, the anesthetist has shown up to give morphine, but the doctor's still not shown up to give, you know do the surgery and give us medicine. So that is what is the issue with COVID and what is the issue with the world economy also.
0: Amit, you mentioned wartime economies a little bit earlier. Um, lots of government intervention, which is staving off a full-blown recession for now. How long do you reckon until the lag from all of the shutdowns really hurts, really starts to to bite?
3: Yeah, so I, if, you know the way I look at it is, you know, we are very early sta- in the very early stages of observing these dominoes work through the supply chains. So, you know, to give you an example. Um, you know, I'm on the leaderboard. I used to be on the leaderboard of flying around the world and collecting air miles. Now with Zoom, uh, it's very unlikely I'm going to be doing that, even if we go fully back to normal. So that's, a technology which is disrupting everything from air travel to airports to everything related to that. So when you think about the the domino effect of that, you know, it takes you typically anywhere between five to six years to order a plane and get a plane. So the manufacturer who's making the widgets of new aeroplanes is going to see the impact of what's happening today over the next 12, 18, 24 months, two years. So you know, there's a lot of stuff to 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 feel through that. Um, you know, one other kind of minor thing on on supply chains is you know when I used to travel, I used to always buy chocolates for my kids. And, you know, a huge amount of sales of chocolates happens in duty-free. So if you look at the chocolate trade, it is really hurt by the fact that people like me are not buying duty-free chocolates. So the world is awash in chocolates as we speak. So, you know, those are the kind of supply chain domino effects, you know, things which you realize and then unintended consequences which you don't realize, which we are all trying to work through as we navigate uh, this, this complex situation that we are in.
0: That's a fascinating insight that I hadn't um, thought through. But uh, if any chocolate manufacturers are listening to this podcast, they can take comfort that during lockdown, my own consumption of chocolate has, um, has absolutely skyrocketed. But um, let's come back to the research that Tom and his group are doing. But before I ask how that work works, affects your investment process, um, Amit. We're going to hear a comment from a market uh, research analyst, Max Stington, from the multi-asset team. Now, they've been using the COVID group's research to create a pandemic dashboard that analyses and tracks the impact of the virus. So it's another way of harnessing this large amount of, uh, of data.
4: So the way our, our kind of COVID-19 fundamentals tracker works is it breaks the kind of virus down into what we think are the kind of four main cycles, both virus cycles that are kind of implicitly affecting markets and the economy. When we think about the virus, we think about what infection rates doing, we think about how how drug developments are, are turning out and, and, and how those are progressing. Uh, we think about kind of prevention measures that governments are, are implementing to kind of keep their populations safe, which of course kind of feeds into kind of economic confidence and the wider economy. And then finally how uh, how the result of activities is playing out, and is that playing out smoothly and effectively? We kind of do a very simple traffic light approach, where we say, is is the level positive, neutral, or negative, or is the change improving, the same, or deteriorating? That's the extent to our PMs, which kind of feeds into their process. We use obviously like a whole a whole range of sources, but one of the most useful ones has been uh, our own proprietary COVID nineteen working group. What? Has been really interesting is how timely and useful it, it is right in the moment. So, for instance, uh, only yesterday we had a whole discussion about vaccine developments and kind of the the timeline to to, to a vaccine, uh, and, and that research was published only last week by uh, one of our colleagues in, in the actually actually research team. Uh, and so, kind of getting a better handle on on what the timeline to a vaccine is, what's the probability of the various vaccine permutations, you know, what probability of, t- of success each of those have. Is a massive, massively important question for markets and and ourselves, and, and so being able to have exceptionally domain-based knowledge within you know, within kind of the medical from the medical field has been massively beneficial to us.
0: That's multi-assets Max Stainton. Now, Tom, uh, Max mentions the medical expertise at Fidelity that feeds into the analysis. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so that uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't apply to me. I have no medical background whatsoever. But on, on the working group, we have people who have been um, trained as doctors or have been doing research on pharmaceutical companies for, for many, many years, in some cases, decades. Uh, so, that, so as Max said, there's a lot of uh, domain expertise within the group.
3: Which has, has been extremely useful.
0: And Amit, um, what's been most useful to you from the um, from the group's work?
3: Yeah, I think the group's work has been you know excellent. You know, in March, um, it was very helpful for us to be able to track what was happening things globally. So you know, you were looking at the spread of the virus in China and Singapore, and you had some analogies of how it would work in in the rest of the world. And actually, the Singapore example of the second wave that they got was very important for us to understand how second waves or just the first wave coming back uh, might work. I'd say there are three or four areas that uh, you know Dr. Judith and Tom's work has been really important for me. One is um, on the virus itself i think we are very early days of even understanding the virus we've done a lot of calls with doctors um, with companies and you know that's that's the number one thing we hear in terms of how we manage the virus as you know tom talked about you know the four things that were applicable in the 1918 pandemic are still the four things that we are dealing with in terms of washing hands keeping social distancing wearing masks and being outside so it's very interesting in terms of how that has developed the thing which is different though is the pace of of you know, how the vaccine and the therapeutic research has worked. And, and there, I think, you know, having the ability to talk to the companies, you know, we are invested in quite a few companies, which we hope will, will come up with a solution to that uh, to to the vaccine. I think that's that's really important. And just understanding that there are almost 120 different ways that we are trying to solve for the vaccine and therapies, I think is very important in terms of the amount of money. And scientific talent that that we are throwing at the problem. And I think that the the, the last thing I'd say is where I'm a little less comfortable, uh, or maybe two more things. One is understanding what a virus mutation would look like. Is, is something which is occupying our minds, which we're spending a lot of time talking to doctors on, but we have nothing really to give a sense. But it is likely that we might see something in that effect, and we'd be very lucky if we don't see anything there. So I think that's, that's the third thing. And the fourth thing I would say is once we get a vaccine, and let's hope we get a vaccine in the next 12 to 18 months, it would be the fastest vaccine that's ever come on any SARS-related virus. How do we actually... Give that why give that vaccine to seven billion people, and I think that uh, you know how that will work on a war footing is something that we have not heard enough on from governments. You know there is anti-vaxxers. You know, if you take France as an example, I was looking at a study, 30% of people don't want to take a vaccine. It does not matter whatever the vaccine is, people will not take the vaccine. And how do you get herd immunity if a certain percentage of people refuse to to inoculate themselves? So there's a lot of issues that we still need to solve for, think about, that I think we're still working through. You know, the the most interesting conversation I had was with a doctor in Singapore who's working on the vaccines. uh, And I asked him, you know, when will you give the vaccine? If is available to to your kids, uh, and he said, "Well, I'd wait for at least the first two hundred fifty million doses because we need to make sure uh, that the cure is not worse than the disease." Well, that's a
0: that's a thought and a half, isn't it,
3: um, Tom? You said at the
0: beginning of this that you're not an you're, you're not a medical expert, and yet. Um, it might be surprising to people to learn how somebody in the investment world like you has had to become an expert on, on COVID-19. Are there any things that have been surprising to you or what's been the most surprising um, thing that you've you've uncovered?
2: Perhaps I would say two things. So first of all, it's kind of the scale at which we're trying to fight this disease, right? So I think at the last count, there's something like 172 vaccines in development across nine different platforms. Only 13 of those are in clinical trials at the moment, but it just shows the collective effort out there to, to try and get something to get this virus under control. And that's next to over 250 different treatments being kind of considered and worked on, some of which have already shown some success, others um, which have, have clearly failed. The other thing that I'd say that has very much surprised me is just, um, and maybe it shouldn't have surprised me, but is th- this difference in, in the way in which governments and politicians have reacted to these, to these viruses, even at the point where the facts were clearly changing, right? It's one thing getting the initial interpretation wrong, as many of us did, as I did as well. But to kind of one month, six, six weeks, two months down the line, still be ignoring the facts that were, were clearly out there, that, that has really surprised me. When politics gets in the way, perhaps. And um, you're
0: used to being interrogated by portfolio managers like Amit. What have people like him, or perhaps Amit himself, what what's the what's the thing they've most wanted to know from you?
2: It's it's really a wide range of things. I've mainly been asked things on the data side of things because that's where a bit more of my expertise lies, as in kind of what what kind of trends would you expect in in kind of case numbers based on lockdown measures being implemented. How long do you think this might take? Um, how long might it take for cases to to kind of move back up once lockdown measures are kind of relaxed? Um, questions like that come up very frequently. And then um, my colleague Judith has obviously had a lot of questions around the vaccine, around treatments, um, where much more of
3: her expertise lies. The mutation question is uh, very important, uh, Richard, because... Uh, you know, one of the great things, you know, it's great is a wrong word, but one of the good things about this uh, this virus has been that it has not impacted young kids. Um, and, you know, that's given a lot of us a lot of comfort. Uh, but if you look at the 1918 analogy, you know, the first wave impacted exactly the, the older generation. And then the second wave hit the youngsters and, and the youth um and so the mutation therefore is is very important uh, is a very important area for us to focus on so that's an area that i think a lot of pms including me have been focused on with with uh, with our research
0: and Anna, assuming that there is not a vaccine immediately what assumptions are you making about how economies develop alongside covid-19
1: yeah so in my base case i don't assume that there will be a substantial synchronized second wave um, that will necessitate full lockdowns that we've seen um, uh, back in uh, uh, March, April. And that is because, uh, obviously, we learned more about the virus, Um, there will be social distancing restrictions in place for an undetermined period of time. Um, Businesses will adapt, consumers are more cautious, um, hospital capacity has increased. We have uh, test and trace programs of varying effectiveness across countries, but still they're there. And this all, to me, this all means um, that the governments will not have to resort to full-scale lockdowns at very high economic costs. So this would be my downside case. But in the base case, I assume that we will see spikes that are asynchronized across countries, across sectors, um, and there will be targeted lockdowns, targeted quarantines. And in terms of um, activity levels, it's interesting um, to look at those economies that um, have been doing social distancing for some time, but they have not been through um, full lockdowns. Two economies in particular, like Sweden and Japan, uh, and they may give a more realistic assessment of um, how much normality uh, we can expect once we go out of the lockdowns into um, social distancing for a long period of time. Um, and it's interesting that some estimates suggest that the activity ceiling, at least in Sweden, is about five percent. Um, that is um, the impact uh, uh, on businesses, in particular, on on contact intensive uh, businesses is about uh, 5%, so activity could be 5% lower than it was before the pandemic uh, permanently, or at least for as long as those social restrictions last. Um, now, of course, um, uh, a lot depends on the structure of the economy, on the density of population, where the population is more dense. Uh, these social restrictions um, are more of a binding constraint. So the range that I've seen estimated, at least for European countries, is about 3 to 6% activity lower, given the social distancing restrictions. Um, of course, there are some upside risks uh, in the sense that um, for Sweden has gone through this experience um, during the disruption um, in supply chains and in other countries, as other countries were in, in, in full lockdowns. But there are some downside risks, of course, because we don't know how consumers will behave and maybe there will be more voluntary social distancing and less consumption um, as the economies reopen. So again, a lot of uncertainty. But what we can say for sure is that full activity resumption to 100% of the levels that we saw pre-crisis is not possible anywhere as long as social distancing restrictions are in place.
0: Okay, so um, we've heard there how the world has changed uh, from Anna with a big picture from Tom looking at the virus itself. Amit, if the world has changed, um, how has your portfolio changed? Um, What are you investing in now or maybe divesting from um, as a result of this very different picture?
3: Yeah, I think it, it it makes for an interesting time to construct a global portfolio. So I just maybe give some pointers. One, I think, you know, COVID is not the only issue that we're thinking about. You know, this is almost a multi-factor problem at, with COVID, one of the factors. Uh, you know, geopolitics is changing with what's going on with China and, and the U.S., we were already going to have a recession. You know, when we were looking at things last year, it was clear that we were going to get a recession given what was happening to the yield curve. And we've just got it sooner because of all of this. And what a recession typically does is it exposes all the fault lines all the problems of the past. So, there's a lot that we need to work through as we go through the next two to three years. So, the way I have kind of thought about my portfolio is that number one, I think the virus will decide the course of the US election. I think number two, um, you know, the shape of how this all plays out, uh, whether the US consumer has the Japanese response of saving a lot more or actually does what the US consumer always does, which is if you give them cash, they go and spend. I think it's very important as as Anna's talked about. And that shape will decide how things come through. So, My portfolio is in in really three buckets. I think of it in three buckets. There is the virus bucket, which is companies which do really well uh, during this phase of lockdown. So Domino's Pizza, Zoom, uh, which we are all on, are are kind of companies or gaming companies which fit into the, the portfolio position, bucket number one. Bucket number two is kind of companies which do well in a recession. And typically after a wartime, you always get a recession. So you've got to think about that. These are companies like, say, Tesco or Walmart you know your food retailers which you always have to go to you know your your basic consumables like Colgate uh, because you always have to brush your teeth even if you're at home and, and and then number three is the recovery cycle which goes back to Anna's point on on recovery rebuild you know what are the sectors which are going to come out stronger from from this are we going to be investing more in technology are we going to be investing more in Renewables are we going to be you know thinking about climate change which is a big issue that that we need to also also tackle, You know, these are the issues that I think, you know, we, we need to focus on from a recovery perspective. And so there are companies in the portfolio which play onto that. Right now, I'd say about 60% of the portfolio is in one and two and, and about 40% of the portfolio is hoping for a recovery. Um, you know, I, I I try not to get too bearish, and I try not to get too bullish, given the uncertainty that we are in at this point of time.
0: And we've got an expert in uh, one sector here um, in particular, Tom. Um, So back to your your day job, looking at um, at financials. How do you think they're going to fare as we we move into... Whatever the next stage is of um, of this of this virus, and in fact the, the the many problems as as Amit set out at the beginning of this, it's not just about COVID nineteen.
2: No, exactly. I think um, the the European bank sector that I that I look at um, has plenty of problems to deal with. Not only the disruption caused to the economies by the virus, but obviously low interest rates, cost pressures, competitive pressures um, that we all need to think about.
3: It's the most coveted sector to cover.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> And there's a lot to learn from it. Um, I think the main um, point here, Richard, is just the enormous uncertainty, right? The main concern around banks in the short term um, is the level of loan losses they're going to incur because of corporates, businesses and, and, and individuals potentially getting into difficulties and not being able to repay their loans. The good thing is that relative to the global financial crisis in 2008-9, banks are much better capitalized because we have had years and years of increasing regulation and demands for higher capital ratios within the banks. And so that means that banks are in a much better position at the start of this downturn. Right. On top of that, we've had, um, as we've already discussed, very significant central bank intervention, um, liquidity provision, um, and we've got the government support schemes. Right, which will hopefully help consumers and businesses get through this period. The difficulty is, of course, there's a limit to all of that. Right? Um, if we do get more meaningful second waves and lockdowns, then more and more businesses will end up in real problem, and therefore banks will incur higher loan losses. So really what we're doing today is just running different scenarios, thinking about which banks are well-placed, to deal with all of those scenarios, what what are the the relative levels of comfort that we can get with these banks? And in some cases we have indeed found that that some banks that in the market are seen as as being very much exposed, having very significant downside, actually offer a very decent risk reward at current levels just because they are pricing in one of the more extreme scenarios, whereas Other banks are pricing in much more optimistic scenarios. So even in this environment, there's room for stock picking and and finding interesting investment ideas for our portfolio managers. I'd
0: expect nothing less, Tom.
3: And I just echo the point that Tom made, because, you know, I think it's not only the countryside, not only the company side, but the countryside also, which is important, because the response from governments has been so different around the world, whether you look at the UK furlough scheme versus the US scheme, you know, that will have an impact on the banks eventually, once we go back to some, you know, kind of normality. So I think there's, there's a huge potential for our analysts like Tom, no pressure, to add value Um, you know, in in deciphering which country uh, as a global PM I should be focusing on and which countries I should not be focusing on.
0: Anna, things normally quieten down over the summer break um, in Europe. Do you think it's going to be the same this year?
1: I don't think this year is going to be the same because uh, the virus is out there and we've just discussed the policy support uh, that will likely be needed uh, uh, to uh, make sure that uh, uh, we do come out of this recession um, and to prevent uh, scarring and permanent damage to the household and the corporate sector. So there will be much more. There is the uh, recovery fund which um, is being discussed and I think this is an extremely important uh, tool uh, for, for the European Union uh, and extremely important initiative to, to, to move forward in terms of u- unity uh, so that's something that uh, I'm sure the policymakers will be busy discussing and then I didn't want to mention it but there is Brexit also coming up at the end of this year um, and we don't have much time left and I'm sure they will be again busy uh, discussing that
0: And I'm afraid we don't have time to talk about that um, in this particular um, episode of of Rich Pickings, but we'll be back um, to talk about that in time. But we do have time uh, very quickly to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Um, Anna, I'm going to come back to you first of all.
1: Well, I decided to think about um, emerging uh, markets this time. There is um, a lot of differentiation across AM in terms of hot cakes, Um, I like uh, Mexico rates. Um, I think that uh, uh, the central bank there is likely to ease much more. There is room for that. Um, And I think the markets are not pricing that in. So um, I like uh, Mexican rates for that reason. And hot potato is the Indian rupee. I think it has been surprisingly resilient uh, despite a really bad outbreak and a really bad fiscal situation. Um, So that's something that uh, I would be um, saying selling uh against the dollar
0: it may yet come a cropper tom what about you what's your hot potato
2: so in terms of hot potatoes i i would say there's there's quite a few stocks in the travel and leisure sector that have rebounded very significantly and are pricing in quite optimistic recovery scenarios you know i don't really share the view on 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 a super optimistic scenario from here i think there will be many bumps along the road um so i think some of those stocks are um are not looking attractive here
0: and your hotcakes, what do you like?
2: Um, I think if you look look across the globe, there's obviously a lot going on within the payments sector in general. There's some very attractive changes happening there, um, good growth rates. So um, some good opportunity in, in that sector, both in the US and in Europe.
0: Is that to do with the move online?
2: It's the move online. It's the use of contactless cards, um, massively accelerating um, all those things.
0: Great, thank you. And Amit, your hotcakes. Uh, let's start with that, first of all.
3: Yeah, maybe if you allow me, uh, i do a different hotcake. Um, you know, given that we're coming close to August and everyone's going to go on holiday, I had a book recommendation. Uh, the book is called The Boy, The Mole... Uh, the Fox and the horse and I think it's a great book. Um, you should get it and read it. It is probably the best hot cake you will get all year. Um, but if I if I move to the more investing side, I'd say my hot cake would probably you know uh, be gold i think uh, gold would provide some protection against the amount of money printing that we've seen uh, and and the risk that the the cure is in some ways worse than the disease on on the economic side so i think gold might might be something to just put in uh, in in the portfolio at this point of time something that we've not done for for quite a long time i'd say and your hot potato my hot potato would be bonds um, I think longer term, while near term, I'm very worried about deflation, longer term, I am increasingly coming around to the view that we should be thinking a bit more about inflation. In that scenario, I think bonds will generally not protect your pricing power, will not protect your asset allocation portfolios. And so bonds uh, would be my uh, my hot potato.
0: Thus spake the equity portfolio manager. Well, the
3: turkey always votes for Christmas. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Amit, thank you very much indeed that's all we have time for Um, I hope that's given you an insight into what the investment teams are thinking if you'd like to read more you can find it on our website fidelityinternational.com and there's plenty more to listen to as well on both our Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channels just search for those titles on your podcast app thanks very much to my guests Anna Stubnitska, Amit Loder, Tom Ackermans and Max Stainton the producer was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher from all of us at Fidelity International, goodbye.